This is Salt and Spine. When I learned about the history of Chinatown, in a sense, that's the mentality of Chinese cooks coming to America was how do we adapt our Chinese techniques to American produce? And I think the success of Chinese food in America is because of the skill and the, the creativity of Chinese chefs to be able to, to make those adaptations and also to make new dishes out of produce or products. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from one of today's guests, Brandon Ju. Now, Brandon and co-author Tianlin Ho join us today to talk about their recent cookbook titled Mr. Ju's in Chinatown, Recipes and Stories from the Birthplace of Chinese-American Food. Mr. Ju's, of course, the restaurant on which the book is based, sits in San Francisco's Chinatown on Waverly Place. In 2013, when the famed restaurant Four Seas closed, down, Brandon decided to open his own place. But before Mr. Jews, Brandon was cooking in some of the best kitchens in the Bay. A student of Judy Rogers at Zuni Cafe and Michael Tusk at Quince, Brandon started his cooking career with California cuisine, riffing on French and Italian classics, and always, always honoring the ingredients. But when Brandon's paternal grandmother passed away from cancer, he realized that her culinary knowledge and skill could be lost too. In the book, he describes his grandmother, called Yingying as the family cook, reminiscing on the incredible food she cooked for the family. After she passed, Brandon says it was a turning point for him. He began to look away from Mediterranean cuisine, leaving Quince and flying to Shanghai, where he learned more about the complex and diverse culinary history of China. His debut cookbook, written with Tianlan Ho, tells both the story of Mr. Ju's The Restaurant and the story of San Francisco's Chinatown, one full of hardships and struggle, but also joy and celebration. Brandon and Tianlan put tradition and history at the forefront of their work, just as Brandon does in the kitchen at Mr. Ju's. The cookbook features countless recipes, with an entire section devoted to the Chinese-American pantry and fermentation. But the recipes are honest and as complex as the food you'll find in Mr. Ju's the restaurant. For instance, some of the recipes take multiple days to prepare. Others ask for over two dozen ingredients and specialty tools you might not have at the ready in your home kitchens. Still, many are very accessible for home cooks. Stick around to hear why it is that Brandon and Tianlan were uncompromising when it came to the recipes, about growing up Chinese-American, and about the Mr. Juice Kitchen that, like the Zunis and the Chez Panisses before it, is teaching a new generation of cooks how to carry a rich culinary tradition into the future. Plus, as always, we're closing today's episode with a culinary game, and you'll find meticulous and beautiful recipes from Mr. Jews in Chinatown on our website after the show. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Brandon Ju and Tianlan Ho joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Brandon. Hi, Tianlan. How are you? Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. I'm great. How are you doing, Brian? Thank you. Great. Excited to have both of you here to talk about your new cookbook, Mr. Jews in Chinatown, which is beautiful. I love the cover. I love the the green and the gold. It's really striking and, and really visually compelling. I love it. Um, so we'll come back to the book in a second, but we always like to start by talking a little bit about each of you and your careers and sort of what brought you to this place where we are today talking about this cookbook that you wrote. So Brandon, let's start with you, because obviously the book is sort of equal parts your life story, as well as the story of Mr. Jews, the restaurant and of Chinatown. So you grew up in the Bay Area, is that right? Yeah, I 
was born and raised in San Francisco, pretty much lived in in the city for most of my life. But around like middle school, we moved to the suburbs, basically like to San Carlos, which is in San Mateo County, about 30, 45 minutes south. But my parents worked in San Francisco. Both my grandparents were in San Francisco. And so we were still very connected to the city, even when we moved away. Going to San Francisco on the weekends was like very much a regular thing for us. So, And you write about this a little bit in the book, but can you talk about the relationship that you had to food as a kid? And, and you talk about also visiting Chinatown as a kid after you moved out of San Francisco. What was your relationship to food like when you were growing up? Well, I, I mean, I was a big bone kid. That's what, that's what I like to, um, you know, just the pictures uh, are, are proof. Um, but <laughs> I think my relationship with food was that I saw that it was a centerpiece of, of a lot of the, the celebrations or the get togethers. And also, I think it was for my parents, it was also a way for, for them to reconnect to the dishes they were nostalgic for from their parents. And so being just part of that, I, I think food, you know, was something that later in life that I started to connect to more things that I was interested in, like creativity and history and even just like the even restaurants themselves like started to connect me to how I like to work like with a team and all these other uh, facets that that kind of really solidified my interest in the in, in the industry. Yeah. And how about you, Tanlan? You grew up in Ohio, is that right? <laughs> yeah, Suburban Columbus, Ohio. Ohio. Mm-hmm. What role did food play for you as, as a child growing well, up? I definitely noticed our family was different in Ohio for so many reasons, obviously, the obvious ones, but also that Thanksgiving to us was just one of many gatherings we would have as a family. I mean, having these big meals where everyone contributed and we had multi-courses and things like that, that was probably a weekend thing. And I know that's what Brandon had too with his grandparents. I mean, for me, going over to my grandparents' house, that meant like a big sit-down meal that we all were a part of. Um, and I and I realized very early that was not something a lot of other kids had unless they had an Asian background or like another old country kind of background. Some of my Jewish friends had that, for example. Sure. And and we'll get to you, Brandon, in a second about your career path. But Tianlan, how did you land on food and food writing as a career? When did that sort of come into play? Yeah, my first one of my first jobs was as a newspaper reporter out in Walla Walla, Washington, <laughs> which okay. is known for Walla Walla sweet onions and also some really great wineries because the um, is it the longitude is the same as someplace in France. And so there were a lot of French people out there. And I remember my first my first real food story was out there in Walla Walla when I followed around this um, French family that had a winery there and they butchered a pig. And we spent like three days working on this where we just butchered a pig. And I got to start from the beginning with the squealing all the way through, like taking home the sausages. And that was the most fun I, I had ever had writing. And, and so that's how it began. And then I ended up in magazines and worked with a lot of really important food writers who took me under their wing. That's how it all started. So, Brandon, I, we mentioned your grandparents. I know your grandparents, in particular your grandmother, had a big impact on you from a culinary perspective. 
And you write in the book too about when your grandmother Yingying passed away from cancer, that that was really a pivotal moment for you and in, in your career. Can you talk about that and your sort of your career trajectory in that way? For sure. Yeah, that like, you know, I had spent most of my career to that point cooking Italian food and I would say California Mediterranean iterations of Italian food too. So, um, but I, but I've kind of found that like even as cooks back then, we would after work we would go to Chinatown and have a big uh, meal together. And, and some, some of that was because it was really one of the only places that were open, you know, at midnight. But the other part was just like, I started to reconnect with like this idea that the food memories that I had, the, the food that was, was, was memorable to me. Um, you know, you, you start to realize when you're cooking, uh, you're paying homage to, to people. And, and I think, by by learning about the history of their food, you become a little more immersed in their culture, and I, I love that about Italy. I mean, it. I mean, I, I lived there for for a year, and and I and I loved my my experience there. But I also realized at that point that I hadn't known enough about Chinese cuisine, and I felt like as a chef, or you mean a chef in training at that moment, you know, that I should be a little more knowledgeable about the food that I enjoyed eating. And so um, I think when my Ying passed away, it was impactful to me because it, it really, I was already feeling this sense of wanting to learn more about Chinese cuisine and, 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 um, and to get training for it. But I think it was this moment for me that was like, it was definitive in a sense of because I wasn't able to access my, my Ying in a way that culinarily speaking, I could get basically all of the observations or all of the nuances that um, she knew. I, I couldn't, I didn't have enough time with her at that moment to really feel like I could even just pass on the, the dishes of hers to even my kids. And, and so that felt like if I wasn't able to do that for my own family, you know, that, that felt like something that as a chef and as a family member, I, I didn't do, I, I mean, I felt like I didn't do enough. Um, and I think that pushed me to move to Shanghai and, and to learn about the cuisine and in a sense like it helped me to um it wasn't like a maybe the kind of path that i initially maybe would have wanted but it was a little longer of a path but i think i i had purpose in the path and that made me feel stronger about continuing to pursue that path how much did that process sort of contribute to what what then became Mr. Jews, like the process of immersing yourself. I know you immersed yourself in Chinese cookbooks after your grandmother passed away. You, you moved to Shanghai. What did that process mean for shaping what became Mr. Jews, the restaurant? I mean, it's really interesting because I think a lot of the people that end up cooking for us or come to our kitchen are on a similar path. Like they, they want to reconnect with their family's food and they and they want to also reconnect with seeing i think asian cuisine 
in my case, Chinese cuisine, particularly like be qualified on the same levels as a lot of other cuisines are in America are considered. I think part of that is by learning how to really produce some of the pantry, um, learn how to really kind of use the techniques, Chinese techniques with produce from, from the Bay Area. So, and I think we, we've had cooks that um, were, were on a similar path and they wanted to see our creative workflow um, to, to also understand how they could, you know, maybe take some of their food memories of their family's food and also still make that, make it like actually storytelling in their own restaurant one day. And I think that's, that's part of this. I, I feel like there's another wave of, of, I would say chefs that are coming through that can, can really feel like that there's storytelling and there's, there's purpose to making this food and also to be able to teach that those techniques to another generation of cooks. I, I feel like most of the, the, I would say professional, like fine dining kitchens that were available to me were mostly French, Italian, and, you know, maybe Japanese. And that those, those three were the ones that really, if you wanted to get a certain kind of training, you would have to learn those cuisines. And I think wanting to make sure that Chinese cuisine was, was also being considered with, with those other cuisines is that was, that was um, something that I, I, I really felt strongly about. So that has been some of the guiding purpose of Mr. Jews. And I think the cooks that are under us feel that, that mission as well. And can I, can yeah. I, can I say mm-hmm. like what Brandon is saying about storytelling and how you put together like your creative flow and how you put together your menu is, I hope it comes through in the book, but I mean, if someone were as great of a, of a chef as Brandon in terms of like just technique, that wouldn't be enough. They need to have, they need to learn these ways of presenting this food so that people who don't have any context can understand it and connect with it. And that's what's so special about what Brandon's done and with his team and at Mr. Jews, like that storytelling aspect is super important. And you can't like, just, it's not like, you know, a long description in a menu. It's, it's the, it's the whole feel and the soul of the restaurant, which tells this larger story of pride and celebration and, you know, energy behind this food. And a lot of credit goes to Anna Lee, um, Brandon's wife and partner in this restaurant with that too. But I think, I think like that should not be undersold, like the importance of working with a chef who can help you see how to do more than just like make a beautiful dish. It's, it's really the whole package. And that to me is what makes Mr. Juice so special and Brandon so special. And how much did that factor Mm -hmm. into how you ultimately structured the book too? Because the book is, is it features a lot of recipes that are labor intensive, time intensive that you cook at the restaurant, but that you've really chronicled and captured the process and the history of and the inspiration behind for for folks who may want to create them at home or for folks who may want to learn about the process like how did that that factor and you certainly could have written a book that was dish more focused dish. on home cooks perhaps yeah or dish by dish and less of the story less of the narrative of Chinatown how did all of that sort of play into how the book formulated you know we we really think about a lot of the right balance to strike even with with our own food and i think with a cookbook it felt really part of 
our normal considerations to make it, you know, I, I think initially I was kind of like, well, the restaurant we're, we're trying to make food that you can't make at, at, at home. I mean, that's kind of what we, we, we really try to <laughs> purposely do. So sure. the, the intention of the book, I think I wanted to like understand as a chef, like, okay, what, what are the dishes that we could present that we could alter to become actually doable at home? And I, you know, I think, wanting to make sure that it was approachable enough for people to actually recreate at their house that that was important i think wanting to not just have a you know coffee table book is i think the, the entire team was was on board with that but i also on the other side of that like i wanted to make sure that our recipes were not completely stripped away from from some of the difficulty because of either ingredients were hard to find or even techniques were a little foreign to people. I, I think that we were trying to really kind of come with a compromise between between the kitchen and 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 10 speed. And Tianlong really like advocated for for our kitchen in a way that um you know and I we we have like I don't know we probably have a spreadsheet on this tea like you know we wanted to actually find out what was considered a difficult recipe was it you know time was it equipment was it hard to source ingredients and i think we just wanted to understand if it was all those things then maybe it was too difficult if it was one of those things could we explain it enough to give people some flexibility if they couldn't get certain things we wanted to to really have people know what the dish is in Mr. Jews, but also allow for some flexibility. But th- there's dishes that I really love at the restaurant that we couldn't put in the book. Um, there's like a rabbit dish. There's a beef tendon dish. There's uh, things that, tendon. you know, <laughs> yeah. We, things that that. Like, we wish you could have done that. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's dishes that we couldn't put on because the re- the reality of someone getting their hands on enough beef tendon to make a terrine and then have a commercial <laughs> slicer to slice it thin. That's probably, you know, I, you know, we, we kind of like we're in agreement that, okay, that might be too much for someone or rabbit. You know, I love rabbit. There's a lot of, I think really useful recipes that I think are, are rabbit focused, but someone being able to get a rabbit, you know, to go through that whole process. There's, there's other dishes that we altered, like even the oxtail dish, we we have a much more elaborate kind of dish that we do in the restaurant that involves braising all the oxtails, then adding bone marrow that, you know, is blanched and and chopped up and, and, and folded into that meat, and then wrapped in like this mustard leaf green and torchoned and then sliced and then seared and then you pour the broth over it and so but we were like no one's going to do that so yeah. having a, a simpler recipe that we thought was still very delicious and still you know I wanted oxtails to be one of the the proteins and because it's it's something that that I have a lot of food memories for and but we we agreed to alter some of the recipes but there's some that we just didn't at all because we wanted people to also understand some of these techniques are nuanced and they are complicated 
but we also want to talk through why we we go through some of those those hoops to get to a certain kind of result and some of that is based on really chinese technique and some of it is based on some of the observations and training that that i've had or things that we've learned along the way you know this the book took three years so it was a lot of it was us learning some of these recipes along the way were were um still altered and and that to the to this day like these recipes are are still on the chopping block of creativity and and also improvement so some of these dishes even that we serve on our menu now we are still thinking of how to make them better and some of them have been slightly tweaked here and there throughout the years so yeah and then connecting each of these dishes back to something in Chinatown or to history, whether it's personal or to like the broader Chinese American experience, that was like a no brainer in part because that's how Brandon thinks. I, there's not one dish here where he did, he can't just tell me a long story about. <laughs> um, <laughs> and a lot of these had multiple stories, which I, I wrote them all down and then I, we had to pick, you know, one that made them was most resonant, but I mean, that's sort of one of the things that's missing in a lot of cookbooks, in my view, the context, because you might get a a book that's like, hey, look at this amazing curry dish. And then there's no context as to how it came to America or like why this particular person who's an Italian chef is cooking it. Or I don't know. I think that's like something that we're all yearning for more these days. Um, For me anyway, I I like context and I like thinking about my place within this. This moment in history is just a moment in history and all these dishes have in some form, some roots that are far, far away from us. And isn't that neat to be a part of that continuum? And was that part of the concept of the book from, from the beginning that you would include sort of this much history about Chinatown, San Francisco, Chinatown, about your memories, Brandon, and your stories? Yeah. I I think initially I was actually hesitant to even produce a book because there was books that I, I'm a cookbook lover too. And and so I felt like I was not a master of my recipes. And when I first initially did, or when I was approached to do a book, I was like, I'm not ready. And then they were like, well, it's going to take three years. I'm like, okay, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe we should get on this road because maybe in three years, yeah. I'd, I'd feel like I'm, you know, I, I would have wanted to. And so sure. initially what I leaned on was the fact that um, I really wanted this book to be about Chinatown and to be about our relationship, you know, as a restaurant and as, you know, the, the memories that I have of Chinatown and bring it to present day and to show some of the, the present day interactions or beauty of, of the neighborhood. And also, I think part of the, the recipe deciding was also based on really some of the, uh, the undertone of, of the book is to, to really have people understand like Authenticity to me is is a combination of I think really I wanted to qualify that someone's training and someone's memories and 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 the things that that um, inspire are all part of a chef's authenticity of of why they cook and and what they're cooking and some of my stories are based on some of the people like Judy Rogers or Michael Tusk that, that, that were my mentors as much as Ying Ying was to me too. And, and that, that, that shaped 
um, my point of view of, of becoming a chef and, and how I handle ingredients. But yeah, I think initially I was, I was really given a lot of questions of, is Mr. Jews going to be an authentic restaurant? And I was just like, well, it's going to be authentic to me, you know, and that's the best that I could actually produce is something that is authentic to me. So the storytelling in a sense is to have people really understand where me and, and my team draw inspirations from and to really give a context to authenticity in a form of a chef being able to develop that over the training or over food memories that have accumulated. So I think a lot of the storytelling that we wanted to come through is is recipe by recipe and and to show how that, you know, maybe initial food memory had kind of, I guess, developed over the course of even the three years of of how we learned how to how to make it or also found ingredients in the Bay Area that were I'd even like to say substitutions, but I I think they they were really ingredients that connected how to use Chinese techniques with these ingredients. And which, I mean, when I learned about, I think the the history of of Chinatown, in a sense, that's the mentality of Chinese cooks coming to America was how do we adapt our Chinese techniques to American produce? And I think the success of Chinese food in America is because of the skill and the, the creativity of Chinese chefs to be able to, to, to make those adaptations and also to make new dishes out of what they were feeling like were, was really like great produce or products. Sure. I think all that's definitely that was in, in our minds when we started and Brandon, Brandon started on this book, you know, when he became a chef, I'm sure he had ideas in his head as to what, how he wanted to do this. But I have to say, I wanted, I want us to take a little credit on like the format. Cause we, that was something that like developed as we were working on it, like in terms of how, how much history we would have in it. And for mm-hmm. me, it came up because some of the, some of the guidance we were getting at, from different, not just like the, I'm not just going to put it on the publisher because the publisher had lots of different ideas and the, um, but like just outwardly, like, why are you writing this book? Maybe like a friend would ask me that. And I think a lot of the questions um, suggested people were like, you should do this so you can get the, get, explain some of the mystery out of Chinatown or like open these doors that aren't op- open to like people who don't speak Chinese or all these things that had to do with exoticism. And I think Part right. of the reason why those questions were framed that way is because no one had, any, not that many people ha- who are not of of this culture or have any have tried to know more about this culture have the context. And you know, like at one point, I think I even had a line like I used the term "fob," <laughs> and so and, and like a draft. And one of the editors didn't know what "fob" "fob" fresh off the boat mm. meant. And I was like, if we're starting at that stage then we need to have like some really fundamental, <laughs> some fundamental guidance is like why Chinatown existed because, yeah, you know, people still like, I got other questions like, well, Chinatown was like by choice. Right. So like, why is this even an interesting topic? And I was like, Oh wow. We need to start and talk about like why Chinatown began and why, yeah. Yeah. Why we're talking about resilience all the time. <laughs> 
We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Brandon Jew and Tian Lin Ho. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of Mr. Jew's in Chinatown. You can also find featured recipes from the book. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guests, Brandon Jew and Tian Lin Ho, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. And we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community today at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Brandon Ju and Tian Lun Ho, authors of Mr. Ju's in Chinatown. You ended up having your whole creative team was Asian American in terms of the two of you, your photographer, Pete Lee, your recipe test developer and tester, which is, I know Tian Lun, you talked to Charlotte Druckmann about this and said that's pretty rare in the cookbook industry. And, and it is. And of course, you were still working with the publishing house and like it tends to be a pretty white industry. But what did it mean in terms of producing this book that your core creative team was all Asian American? Well, I guess I, I would say it wasn't in, it, it didn't feel intentional to actually have that team be built that way. And, you know, really, I, I chose everyone because of their talent. But I, I also think for the team that we we had, Tianlon and Pete, really, because they they were people that I interacted with very regularly for the book, I think really Tianlon is like an amazing writer about, you know, she's very thorough. She's just puts her heart into, into writing in a way that really satisfies and really goes above and beyond that there's a side of me that that is very kind of serious and and I'd say I wanted to be very thoughtful and and really thorough and that's what Tianlon is like to a T um <laughs> Pete Lee is maybe the other opposite side of Tianlon in a way of that he's completely just you know, an artist, very carefree, very, you know, like nothing is very planned, but he's very talented and he's very creative Uh and he, he can, you know, put things together very quickly in a way. I think having both of them felt very much like they could be the two sides of me that I tried to be kind of in between a lot in my life. And so they, I think, as as a team, they they represent voices that I thought were important for for the book to have. But I also I think yeah, subconsciously, like I, I knew that this book was something that was very personal to me, and I knew because of how Mister Juice has been really training cooks, I knew that there was uh, a deeper purpose for this book to be out there, and I I wanted the team around me to also have that same kind of drive to like have this book be everything that we wanted it to, to be and say and, and look like. And, and Christine was like, yeah, Christine, she's, she's amazing as well. I mean, the natural consequence of us all being Asian American, even though we're all Asian American, we're so, we're so diverse just in the way we think about things, obviously, but then also our personal backgrounds and the conversations that we had, which are super mm-hmm. vital to, 
thinking about like the spirit of the book and like how you, how you want to frame things. I really appreciated having like Brandon and I would have these long talks about what, you know, what duck sauce meant, what plum sauce meant. And like with Peking yeah. roast duck, it's different on the East coast versus the West coast. I'm um, Ohio is actually technically East coast. So, <laughs> you know, like I, I think about things a little bit differently from like West coast, Chinese American food. And another example is like, I remember I, these aren't, these aren't conversations you can have with someone who's never had this kind of food, you know, or, or just doesn't have these, this, this experience with it. Like, um, Brandon makes um, a liang fin, like a, a noodle that's, it's, it's like a noodle, but it's a little jelly. It's a jelly noodle. <laughs> and it's with uh-huh. his um, mouthwatering recipe, his mouthwatering tomatoes, right? The tomatoes, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and depending on where you are in China or Taiwan or wherever in the diaspora, you can call it many different things. So Pete, so I talked with Brandon about it. And then I talked to Frankie, who is on Brandon's staff and he had a different way of framing it. And I talked with Will Doe, who's on Brandon's staff, is a different way of framing it. And then I talked with Pete and we just all talked about like how we would, what we would call it. And sometimes you, there's no right answer, you know? So, you know, I ended up using what, what Brandon calls it, but I, you know, you can, you can frame things in so many different ways. And for me, that was really important to be able to bounce these ideas off everyone and like have, think about everyone's different experience being um, Asian American. And that was really helpful for me and, and Brandon. Yeah. And it's helpful for him every day, right, Brandon? I mean, that's how you like, you guys bounce off ideas for dishes that way too, in terms of like what people have grown up with, whether they grew up eating like, you know, strip mall general Zhou's versus <laughs> someone who's who grew up in China for the first 15 years of their life. We mentioned COVID right at the end of the book. There's a, a, a page at the end that says one last thing. There's a picture of your team in masks and and you write it's hard to imagine the future for Chinatown when so much is about where so much is about community, where meals are a bunch of people gathered around a lazy Susan sharing plates of food and the worry that those experiences might be gone for some period of time or or perhaps with some sort of permanence to them. Obviously, you know, Chinatown has been hit particularly hard over the past year. How did that sort of factor in as you were putting the finishing touches on this book, I think probably right around the time that, that the shutdown started happening. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you struggle with whether to include that? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is actually mostly Tian idea to try to round out the book because we wanted to address it, but we didn't really know at that point, we didn't know how to, or even I think that it was going to, really be this long of a pandemic really so but we we didn't know because of Chinatown experiencing the slowdown months before the actual shutdown that it was very serious and we understood it as as like you know some of it being just location in the city tourism just kind of dying down but also we we also recognized from our community that this was also partly because of xenophobia. And I think understanding that this neighborhood had dealt with really so much racism and hatred, but, but that it had persevered through that and that it had really seen success even after experiencing that in America. I, I think there was something that I knew that we had to draw upon in this generation to look back. And I think even now 
to, you know, recently of, of seeing what, what's happening in, in our community and, you know, in the Bay area, in, 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 um, in a lot of parts of America, this is, I think even a more important topic to maybe end the book with is that we, we still have work to do to, to be considered equal. And I think that, um, seeing that this community used food as a way to bridge communities and to have people understand our culture through food. We, we thought it was an important piece to, to say that, you know, yes, this is a cookbook, but also food and its importance to this community was more than just food. Right. I, I mean, I think, we had felt like the book was was uh, a snapshot of really pre-pandemic you know life in the kitchen in Chinatown and that remembering how it was also was was going to be important to bring it back to what it was and you know yeah. th- this isn't even the first pandemic that Chinatown has had to struggle through there was the bubonic right. plague and then after that, there was H1N1, which some people call mm-hmm. the Spanish flu. And those were two major moments, if you look at history, where Chinatown really had to band together in the same way it's doing now and really reach out and fight against xenophobia because there was a lot of reactionary discrimination with both of those two to Chinatown and people from Chinatown and people were not allowed to leave Chinatown, even if they had jobs outside of it. There, there were shootings if you left. You were allowed to shoot someone if they stepped out of Chinatown after hours. There are all kinds of crazy things that happened with these other pandemics. And, you know, food is just one lens to look at what different immigrant groups bring to a country, you know, to a new place. And to not see this you know, we're all really young and we see this, this current pandemic as like the first thing that horrible thing that has ever happened before. And like, what can we do? But I, I I think that it's really important to look at context again and see that Chinatown survived this before and how did, how did it survive and how did it make America a better place because of it? And I, I I wanted to make sure that people also thought about it that way, the way Brandon and I think about it. Right. Last question before we play our closing game. So we're a show on cookbooks, obviously. I'd love to know from each of you if there's one cookbook or one author in particular that has been really influential to you in in your career as a chef, as a writer, etc. Just one? I know. I I know. (laughs) It's hard because we're running short on time. So I'd love to hear like 10 or more. But if you can... (laughs) Give me one okay. or two that have been wait, wait, really Brand- meaningful to you. Brandon, we should say that there's a list of the ones that Brandon dug into, right? And everyone should read every every one of those. Anyone who's mentioned in this book, for one. And then Brandon. Yeah, and there's a lot mentioned in this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's actually more that I felt like I should have even mentioned. Ken Hom. Um, yeah. is, oh, he is, made is, it is in. He's an amazing writer. Okay, good. I hope so. I hope um, so. <laughs> You know, Grace Young has amazing books. Um, yeah. The one that was kind of, I think the book that I, I go to a lot for inspiration was Zuni Cafe. Um, I, I, I was working at Zuni when Judy was writing her book. So I kind of saw her, the process and I, I actually felt like she was a master of her recipe. So um, aspiring to that was, was um, 
something really um, important to me. And I, and I think yeah. the way that she gave a lot of her voice to the context of her recipes made it very approachable to, um, uh, I think, cooks at, at home or, or just reading about it um, to have these really observations that make the recipe a lot more successful by just understanding some of the things that you're supposed to really look out for, whether it's on the positive or negative side. How about you, T? What, yeah. what are your, who are your favorites? Yeah, I want to grab the book because I want to, um, I was thinking about it. Well, let me keep it simple. Um, yeah, when I was writing this book, I, I looked at Zuni Cafe a lot and partly because I know what a great influence it was on Brandon, but also because it's such, it epitomizes so much of, you know, the California aesthetic and what California cuisine means. And also because Judy was a nerd like me <laughs> and she went to Stanford <laughs> like me and she's really super precise. And the way she captured things in her recipes were, they weren't, they're not super long, but they're, they're technique driven and they're principle driven so that once you know how to do it, you can apply it to so many other things. And I, whenever I was looking at a recipe and the way it was worded, I, I thought about Judy and how she would have worded it. So um, Zuni is yeah. definitely a big influence on this, on this book, I think in so many ways. Yeah. If, if I have time, I would grab another book. It's um, an ancient Chinese cookbook that also was a huge influence because for me, like some of those things that those little tidbits that are about like having like a charcuterie master in your, um, <laughs> you know, like in your home or like having a pickle master and then a salt master. I mean, that was amazing. That all came from this one particular book. And if, uh, and uh, which everyone should check out, ah, let me go get it. It's super important. Can okay. I grab it? Okay. okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We hear Zuni cafe a lot. I'm sure. As an influential, influential book for folks. Yeah. So you worked there while she was writing her book at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. In the process of like finishing the book when I was working there. And then when it came out, yeah, she won the James Beard Award that year. Um, I think two awards, I think best chef and best cookbook. And so uh -huh. it was, it was a really celebratory um, time to be at Zuni. Yeah, that's that's awesome to be there in that moment. Yeah, and and like the the way that I saw in a way like Chez Panisse influence uh, a lot of the cooks under you know Alice. What I'm now realizing, and I I'm not really I I, I would never compare Mr. Juice to Chez Panisse, but in a in a sense like I I can see. <laughs> <laughs> We we have a we have a lot more years to to go, but but seeing that that you could have an influence like that on the cooks under you, I I, I feel more and more like my role has has changed in a sense of not just um, seeing through recipes, but also seeing through the mentorship of of really the cooks to to really be able to have their own voice too. Um, sure. I think, I think that's been an exciting part of the last couple of years to see, um, yeah, some of the cooks that have worked with us, um, start to develop their own. Yeah. I mean, I hope we do someday see a map of like the influence of the Mr. Jews world <laughs> in the same way that we do, <laughs> was, like where are all was, the Shea yeah, alums? Like, yeah. 10 more years. Um, maybe 20. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's some young people. You do have some really young people on your team. I have the book. Okay. 
The book is Yuan Mei's Recipes from the Garden of Contentment. And there's just a new recently done translation in English by Shan Chen, which makes it super accessible because before it would be like this very, you'd have to get in hard copy and it was all in, in ancient Chinese. So <laughs> Sean has done a great job translating it. And it's just a wonderful, interesting look at what Chinese gastronomy was back in the 1700s. Because so that was sort of like, just like like the Edomai period in Japan, there was like this revolutionary time and uh, Renaissance time in Chinese cuisine. And, and that's sort of like a moment where things were really modernized. And so a lot of the things we eat now are still tied to that time. Um, and it's super fascinating. And for me, it was just, again, that whole idea of like lineage and thinking about where Brandon falls in this whole continuum is, um, it's really helpful to just ground yourself in something ancient too sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's awesome. Well, let's end with our little game. So we always use these cards. We've got four four types of cards here. So vegetables, self-explanatory, proteins. We have a flavor category, which are you know herbs, spices, flavoring agents. And then we have the secret ingredient pile, which oh, can God. be kind of a, a, just a random ingredient or a more obscure ingredient. So I'll draw one of each from each category and let's pretend that you're, you're each having each other over for dinner. So one of you can go first. Let's say Brandon, you're having Tianlan over for dinner tonight. What would you make with her or what would you make for her using those ingredients that you have in your, in your basket per se? So who wants, does that sound good? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. Who wants to go first? B. Okay. I'll go first. Okay. Uh, Let's see. All right. For protein, we have Turkey. Mm-hmm. Let's pick a flavor. Flavor is bay leaf. Mm-hmm. Standard. The vegetable we have is a carrot. Mm-hmm. And our secret ingredient is grape jelly. Oh. Whoa. Grape <laughs> jelly. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> Turkey, bay leaf, carrot, and grape jelly. <laughs> what mm. are we what are we making? Mm. I mean it sounds almost like what we're having is well i think that sounds a little bit like thanksgiving in a way of like yeah you know um i think a lot of times the day after thanksgiving you would make maybe a turkey sandwich with with some of these fixings like maybe jelly and yeah but yeah i think um, Brandon doesn't like the grape jelly part, do you, Brandon? Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. I, I almost want to like turn that into like a sorbet or something, like melt yeah. it down and you know, kind of, but um, and have it be dessert. But but I think if I had to work with this, I would say this would probably be a lunch. I would start with some sort of like shaved carrot salad. Um, uh-huh. and then I would make, um, a, like a, maybe a pressed like sandwich that had a little bit of grape jelly, some sliced Turkey, and maybe adding a little bit of bay leaf into like, um, uh, maybe, maybe I would like, maybe a lot of times I would take bay leaves and use it when in my smoking chips, you can't use okay. a lot of it, but you could use some of it and you can get. Um, kind of like an interesting kind of flavor to that too. So maybe the the turkey I would smoke with those bay leaves or smoke the carrots even um, before Ooh. we made a salad. 
Brandon Salads. But are all so this weird. would all this would take many iterations to come up with something. But um, yeah, he just slap it together. <laughs> I, that sounds great. That, that's a great start. Okay. <laughs> really um, all right, let's see. With all right, pickles. so that's what you're having. Pickles are that's what too. you're having. Okay. And then next day, um, roles are reversed. Tianlin, you're hosting <laughs> Brandon. So what do you have to work with? You have ham as your protein. The flavor you have you is cinnamon. Oh. Your vegetable is corn. Oh. And your secret ingredient is kumquat. What? This is new world, old world mixed together. Uh, kumquat. Well, so that's kind of cool because kumquat, you know, that's a big Chinese thing where you, you can do all kinds of candied kumquats and dry them and ferment them and do all kinds of uh-huh. neat orange peely type flavorings with them. So any sort of sweet and sour thing happens. And the cinnamon is also a fundamental part of our five spice, 10 spice Brandon's Brandon uses cassia or cinnamon, right, Brandon, sometimes? Um, yeah. And then and we can make the ham. I'm going to make the ham Chinese ham. I'm going to say it's a Jinghua ham just so that we can keep that all in the, in the old world Chinese sure. world. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I just learned about hulling corn like the old-fashioned way. You would, like, boil corn with, like, the ashes from your stove. And then you would peel off the skin from all the corn and then it would just leave that like in the Mexican way, like just that very soft inner part of the corn. So uh-huh. I might make that. <laughs> I do like a hold corn base and then do like ham with five spice with a cinnamon and then do like some candy kumquats on top just for fun to make it like, like that sweet and sour thing. Ooh, sounds good to me. Amazing. Oh. That sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those those were very impressive. Well, no, I'm never going to do so that. Much. That sounds way too hard. <laughs> yeah, we can we can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brandon Tianlan, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. This was so much fun. Thanks so much, Thanks, Brian. A lot of fun. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from Mr. Jews in Chinatown. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our intern, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.